Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Mm, just hearing that song and reflecting on uh, the family of things and the web of life and how we often feel removed and disconnected from it. Uh, and the more we can feel that connection, the more we we want to care for and um, dedicate our energies towards um, making sure there's still a family tree. So I'll, I'll say um, I'll say a few words, and uh, I've I've given. If you've been coming here for a while, you know that uh, from time to time I I've been giving talks on uh, environment, ecology, uh, dharma, intersection, and all, and um, uh, and I've shared recently. I I've been going through my own grieving process, which is, I think, part of the, uh, an important part of the process of transforming our pain and our sorrow and our, um, yeah, sadness of where we uh, are and where we might be, where we seem to be heading uh, into meaningful action. And so it's okay and, I think, healthy to grieve. Um, hopefully it's not the only, the only feeling, it's not a, an ongoing grieving, but you process it and then you, um, you digest the sorrow and turn it into a compassionate action. And um, that's what I've been doing with this last round of of uh of grieving as uh, Joanna Macy so so beautifully says we we start with gratitude for for our good fortune of receiving so much from the earth then we grieve and feel our pain at a situation and then we look with fresh eyes and then we go forth and see what we can do. Um, and that's been my uh, question to myself, what can I do? And I, I put that out to all of you. What can we do um, individually and collectively? And um, I've mentioned that I'm trying to do my part to, uh, to see what can the Dharma have to offer uh, both individually, so that each Dharma practitioner can hold the situation, and also collectively, what does the Dharma and the teachings have to uh, offer to the greater conversation of uh, making a meaningful difference in this world? Mm. One thing I want to mention, and I'm 
glad this is being is it being recorded. Uh, I wanted to wait until uh, it was being recorded for uh, rather than make an announcement before. There's flyers in the back, uh, and there's also now on the Spirit Rock calendar uh, an event that um, I'm involved in um, that I think is going to be quite special. Uh, it's in September, September 15th, Sunday, September 15th, um, and it's called No Time to Lose, a, a Dharma Response to Climate Change. Um, and it will I'll be hosting it. Uh, Joanna Macy will be there. Um, Tara Brock will be there by uh, Zoom, uh, giving uh, live teachings. Um, a wonderful, inspiring woman, Belvi Rooks, uh, who was at the last year's Climate Day, um, really inspiring African-American woman um, who puts spirituality and activism uh, to a beautiful expression. Jennifer Berezin, who um, uh, Hung Shura mentioned. Jack Cornfield will be there also via video. He's going to be out of town. And uh, Venerable Analio who is um, one of the most inspiring uh, Buddhist scholars and meditation masters, also by video. Uh, and I'm also going to be having a number of really inspiring teachers giving very short clips about how they see this as part of Dharma practice and, um, and what uh, Dharma has to offer and maybe give a, a short little Dharmet uh, on that number of different teachers. That's the plan. And it's going to be a, a Dhamma day. So there's no formal charge for this day, both live and live stream. People can uh, tune in from everywhere and, or watch the recording later. And it's going to be a benefit for One Earth Sangha and Spirit Rock. One Earth Sangha is a very wonderful platform that provides teachings and trainings around Dharma and climate change. Uh, so I'm going to ask people to be very generous to whatever extent they can because uh, I want to really support One Earth Sangha. So that's uh, September 15th. Uh, it's not open yet for registration. It will be open soon. It is on the calendar, on the Spirit Rock calendar boat, so you can see when they open. So that's one thing that I can... Um, one one thing that I do is I, I know a lot of people, really great people, so I say, okay, maybe I can get them together and share. So we all find what we can do. Um, and in the process of of trying to figure out what the Dharma does have to offer, I started uh, this book in uh, the last few weeks called Eco-Dharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis by David Loy. It's really great, and I highly recommend it. And I, not that much time, but wanted to explore at least starting to explore some themes. And when I come back from my travels, I want to do a series of talks uh, on on uh, all the, the wonderful Dharma uh, reflections that he has. And I'll first start the, with... You, you probably 
If you don't know all the details, you certainly know that there's bad news. And it can get overwhelming to hear all the bad news. So I won't overwhelm you. It might be, I was going to read one passage, uh, but in the interests of time and also just to, uh, to, to not be so um, depressing, I'll just skip over that part now. But you know, it's really bad. Anybody not know that? I wouldn't say hopeless, but it's really bad. And we need to wake up very quickly. In some ways, um, as he says, uh, one of the in one of the chapters uh, is the eco crisis the Earth's way of telling us to wake up or suffer the consequences. This is, one can look at it that way that we are now being forced to wake up. No, not only no time to lose, no time to uh, to go to sleep. Um, so that's how I'm holding it. That this is not just a wake up call, a wake up alarm to um, change our ways from an unsustainable system. Well, one of the things that uh, one of the points that he makes at the beginning that uh, really strikes me is underscoring how our values have gotten so distorted that we truly are lost in ignorance when it comes to what real wealth is, what real value is, that now, in since particularly not only the Industrial Revolution, but in the last 50 or 60 years, when consumerism has become our religion, that um, we measure things in accumulated wealth. And that profit is the measure of our happiness or success which is a complete distortion of of what real happiness is. And I'll just um, read a a little bit of this. Mm. The fundamental problem is the relation with the relationship between modern civilization and the natural world is the perversity of any economic system that devalues the biosphere, which humans are part of, of course, into a means for achieving something else. What is unique today is the combination of extraordinarily powerful technologies, unprecedented population growth, and an economic system that needs to keep expanding if it is to avoid collapse. The way the system is is set up is that expansion 
what your quarterly profits are from one year to another, that's the indication if you're doing well. Now, in a, in a finite, in a world of finite resources, that's insane. It's insane. I mean, any third grader can see, unless you get a bigger pie, if you keep up slice, slicing up the pie, uh, you're, you're not going to have anything left. It can't keep on expanding. And this is uh, uh, what he has to say about money. This is really fascinating. Um, money, when you think about it in itself, is worthless. And at the same time, it's also the most valuable thing of all because it's our medium of exchange. The money complex, a psychosis that's been normalized, an institutional dream that everyone is having at once. We unreflectively try to equate the satisfaction of our desires with happiness. Money, psychologically and perhaps inevitably, comes to represent the possibility of happiness. So money transforms into a pure means that swallows all its end. Abstract happiness, as, as Schopenhauer puts it. Therefore, therefore, those unable to enjoy concrete happiness delight in accumulating money. Money becomes frozen desire not desire for anything in particular, but a symbol for the satisfaction of desires, desire in general. So we end up sacrificing everything real for a symbol that's worthless in itself, exchanging what is most valuable for something that in itself has no value whatsoever. And this is a Native American saying, when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish caught, the last river poisoned, only then will we realize that one cannot eat money. <clears throat> Whereas Naomi Klein says, <clears throat> what the climate needs to avoid collapse is a contraction. What the climate needs to avoid collapse is a contraction in humanity's use of resources. But what our economic model demands to avoid collapse is unfettered expansion. Only one of these sets of rules can be changed, and it's not the laws of nature. Get that? So, that's, that's the the dream world that we're living in of where happiness is to be found. And he says that a lot of this has become, has come about because there's been a loss of the sacred. And he's not just talking about, um, uh, not Buddhism, but in our religions, 
that through the uh, Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in particular, and at the same time science, uh, the, the age of, uh, of, of seeing the scientific way of looking at the world, at the same time that gunpowder was, uh, was created, all of this in like the 16th and 17th century, and some natural disasters, famines, plagues, and all, all of this, uh, but particularly he points to the, the Protestant Reformation in, in Western civilization, where all of a sudden um, we lose our sacred in the everyday and and God is somehow up there disconnected from from the sacred in the earth and I, I was raised Jewish so I, I I I don't I have my own kind of um, cross to bear or whatever uh, my own confusions around religion uh, and um, and but and but there's something sacred that's that was in that's been in Catholicism that that it's uh, everything is imbued with the divine and as this change happened in those centuries this is a quote from Kepler a scientist that kind of underscores this he says astronomer Johannes Kepler wrote my aim is to show that the celestial machine is to be likened not to a divine organism, but to a clockwork. And once God, and this is Loy, and once God wound that clockwork up, God was not needed to keep it ticking. So there's a kind of evaporation of the sacred dimension instead of, and with most indigenous peoples, where everything is imbued with the divine, it's more, well, when we get out of here and we get to heaven, then we'll have it made. But within this earthly level, uh, the, the divine has gotten lost in the, uh, in the shuffle for the mechanistic, materialistic view of of the world. And so we're having a kind of spiritual crisis here. And it's important to see that that's part of the ecological crisis. I'm I'm just giving you a little bit of a download, okay? Because it's so it's still working on me and I just wanted to even as I share these thoughts it's it's getting clear in my own my own mind, and we'll get to Buddhism in a moment because this is—it's pointing to now. What does Buddhism have to say, and where does it get caught, and what is what's the possibilities? Um, and it's important to remember that crisis—the word "crisis" in in Chinese stands for danger plus opportunity. So we're at a crisis here, and there's possibilities here, and. This, we're in this eco-crisis, uh, which is the Earth's way of telling us to wake up. Okay, so now let's get to Buddhism for a little, which is really the heart of what is drawing me. He makes the point that in traditional Buddhism, 
awakening, enlightenment, which is what the Buddha talked of as the goal, if there's any kind of goal, that it's an individual journey. That I have, I'm suffering, what's the cause of suffering? My wanting, uh, what's the end to suffering? The end of my wanting and craving, and there's a path leading to that end. But it's about my karma, my craving, my ignorance, and if I can free my mind and see clearly beyond the the confusion, I can be free. Which is a a really beautiful um, teaching and offering. Except that it's a very private journey. Now, in the, this is in the Theravadan particularly, which is the teachings of the Buddha, the earliest teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and then there's the Mahayana and the Vajrayana. And the Mahayana, there's it's talked of Mahayana uh, in China and Korea and Japan, um, where Zen, Chan Buddhism, like we're like we our host monastery is, uh, brings in compassion into the mix. So that's a really great step. However, it's still about me becoming enlightened. Yes, for the benefit of all, but it's a very individual process I will postpone my own enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, or I will become enlightened for the benefit of all beings. And except for the bodhisattva uh, notion of keeping on coming back for the benefit of all beings, even then it's still very much on the human realm. Um, And... Enlightenment is about somehow, unless you have a bodhisattva ideal, uh, it is somehow a, a very personal experience. And it doesn't take into account, even in the Mahayana um, traditions, institutional dukkha. It doesn't take into account until recent times, racism, oppression, inequity, tribalism, nationalism, and all of these forces that we're a part of, still the practice is is mostly focused on how can I wake up in the middle of this? And this is a, perhaps uh, eco-crisis is also a Buddhist crisis. Uh, and he makes the point that even though in recent years there's been a whole movement of engaged Buddhism, 
And it's been beautiful to see the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and all of the uh, all of the engagement with with Dharma and uh, and ecology and uh, Joanna Macy and deep ecology and things like that. That's not in the forefront the most popular expression of Buddhism. When you you do a, a, a day on uh, on climate, a lot of it's still now it's starting to gain gain attention. Now it's like, well, all the Democratic candidates, if I can just for a moment be uh, uh, bring that into things, is that oh, climate is is the number one issue in many polls for Democratic voters now. But this is completely new. What really, how mindful, how the Dharma has exploded is the mindfulness revolution. That, like hotcakes, everywhere. And people are hungry for mindfulness, and it's a very individual kind of a thing. And it becomes a commodity, and it becomes a way to just feel, come to some balance and equanimity with the way things are. Whether it's in your own personal life, or, oh, okay, I'll just come to some kind of balance within my relationship to this crazy world. Mm. And as he, he points out, where is it? Mm. A comment by uh, Brazilian Archbishop uh, Dom Helder Camara uh, that he plays off of, who said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. <laughs> and the Buddhist version, when, when Buddhists help homeless people and prison inmates, they're called bodhisattvas. But when Buddhists ask why there are so many more homeless, so many people of color stuck in prison, other Buddhists call them leftists or radicals, saying that social action has nothing to do with Buddhism. And this is something that many Dharma teachers are up against when we start talking about socially engaged things or ecology or or uh, views, social views that border on politics. Hey, leave that stuff out. That's not Dharma. And at this time, more than ever, we need to wake up to see what is Dharma and looking at institutional dukkha, systemic dukkha, besides our individual one. Mm -hmm. And he he talks about one central piece in in Buddhism that we can get lost in, or go in different directions, I should say, is our relationship to nirvana or nibbana. If nibbana is seen as some 
lofty sphere beyond the conditioned, which in many teachings, that's where, that's what it points to, that there is the unconditioned. But if it's seen that way as some place that it's, it's the Buddhist version of heaven, so to speak, that when I get out of here, I'll somehow find the real peace. There is a subtle kind of let's get out of here. On one retreat, I might have mentioned this recently, I sat with a Burmese master. This is 20, no, 35 years ago. Um, and every evening he would end his talks. Brilliant master. He'd say, may you speedily attain Nibbana and escape from the woes of this world. This is night after night after night. And that got in there. And that's often a message that is given, even in, um, even in the Mahayana, where there's a, an awakening experience and you break through to you know, the other shore, the pure land in pure land Buddhism, for instance. Um, and that we have this transcendent view of enlightenment that's otherworldly, as opposed to another way of looking at Dharma practice is that samsara and nirvana are one. That's the other perspective where it's right here, right now. This is where awakening happens in this moment and we're connected to everything. So the the idea of anatta, of the selfless nature of reality, is n- not so that you can escape from everything, but see, I'm connected to everything. Everything I'm a part of, and uh, and I'm a, and everything is a part of me. And uh, I'll, I'll quote uh, from Joanna Macy here. She says that the spiritual trap is that the phenomenal world is an illusion, impermanent and made of matter. It is less worthy than a realm of pure spirit. Its pain and its demands on us are less real than the pleasures or tranquility we can find in transcending them. Suffering is a mistake somehow. Pain we may feel in beholding the world derives from our own cravings and attachments. According to this view, freedom from suffering is attained by non-attachment to the fate of all beings, rather than non-attachment to matters of the ego. That we create our world unilaterally by the power of our own mind. Our subjective thoughts dictate the forms, the form things will take. Grief for the plight of the world is negative thinking. Confronting injustice and dangers simply creates more conflict and suffering. And the corollary is that the world is already perfect when we view it spiritually. We feel then so peaceful that the world will become peaceful 
without our need to act. Mm. Just a couple of more things that really strike me that I want to share. This is from David Foster Wallace, commencement address, talking about our what we worship. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, be seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. So, um, So Buddhism in there is very good for seeing that it's not about things and that Buddhism has a lot to offer by seeing, by deconstructing this sense of self and seeing how we can just get lost in, in the duality of things. Uh, but at this point, we have to really look at Buddhism itself and see how we're using it to have a very private individual understanding of awakening or if we're all waking up together. And this is a very exciting moment when you think about it. I was just watching uh, some young people who were inspired by Greta Thunberg and doing all of these actions around the world. And we're waking up and the Dharma has something very real to offer that around compassion, around sila, around cause and effect, around simplicity and renunciation, around anatta, but it can be misused. That's the thing. It can be misused unless we see that 
we're all in this together and truly see the interconnectedness of things and that um, there's something real that we can um, offer in our own practice and in sharing with others the deeper kind of dharma that is not a private journey, but this is something that we're all in at this moment, waking up together. So anyway, that's that's a, a little bit of a condensation of so far the first few chapters of of uh, of, of the book, and I'm looking forward to going to the the next few. So um, there's just uh, a few minutes, uh, maybe five minutes or so. Any questions, comments before we we close? Is this one? Yeah, it, this is it's not doing it unless I maybe I have to. T- well, uh, I agree with everything you said. The problem is, how do we fit it into the modern world of politics and political change, which is what defines everything? You know, I mean. The Democratic Party is not even having any debates on climate change, and so so how how do we how do we work within this kind of system? Uh, you turn that off so I can. You know, I'm actually really excited because, on the one hand, there are climate deniers; it's all a hoax, and on the other, it's uh, we're headed for disaster unless we wake up. If that doesn't motivate people to get out and be part of this next election cycle, I don't know what will. Climate, I say, is the most exciting issue because everything is on the line. And for me, I'm when somebody says, what can I do about climate? Yeah, well, you make sure that um, the climate deniers are not running the show. And you do everything you can for that. That's exciting. Finally, you can do something. And um, that's my litmus test these days. And there was never actually that moment in time where we're putting in all our chips one way or another. So um, I think it's really, it's perfect that this now has become the the main, the number one issue for many people. How cool. Nan, behind you. Right over there. It is very, very true that we are in a terrible climate crisis. Tilted just a bit. But I can say, myself personally being involved integrally in the movement, that there is an upsurging of people that want to be involved. Young people, we have an organization within 350 Bay Area that's called Youth Versus Apocalypse, and these are young children in middle school and high school and college who are going to be creating a big climate strike in September. Mm-hmm. 
and it's going to be a big deal, and people are really beginning to get involved. They really are. Big time. And that, it gives me hope, I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 was, uh, I had lunch with Anam Tupton Rinpoche this week, mm-hmm. and his daughter, who's in the sixth grade, um, was uh, he sent me a video of her. She went with a lot of kids uh, in, uh, in the last few months to Sacramento, and were uh, speaking to uh, the legislators there and saying, you've got to do something. She sh- uh, he, he sent me this, this clip today, like, whoa, she's this powerhouse. We're, we're counting on you. You better not fail us now. And I saw this, uh, similar kinds of clips from around the world uh, just, just a couple of... Uh, uh, a few hours ago, while I was uh, while I was getting this talk, something popped up on 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 the news. There's something happening here that is very exciting. This groundswell, and September 20th is the next big strike. Yeah. The last one in March 24th. There were 1,600 cities mm-hmm. and over a million kids around the world. We nothing got covered in our news here. But around, you should see thousands of kids in Melbourne and in, in Berlin. It, it was covered in, here. It was covered here. As a matter of fact, if you go on YouTube, you can see. You can see, but I'm talking about on the front page when it was happening. Right, yeah. that, that's, that, I, I saw it, but I had to dig for it. And in other places, now once it starts getting to the front page, and this is happening, and in September... Five days after this this day long, uh, it's going to be big. So I agree. There's something something happening here. We have to be very very serious about the elections in 2020. I mean, we all have to get out there, yeah, and really go door to door mm-hmm. and and make a big influence. Yeah, and this is it's not a political thing. It's a moral thing. It's a yes, it it's is. a it, it's a it's a self preservation thing. So, um, because yes. everything that Mr. Obama did is being chopped away at, and mm-hmm. if you read the the New York Times today, they're doing more and more yeah. and more. Yeah, yeah so. this is all chips are in mm-hmm. at this point. Put your mm-hmm. chips in. Okay, it's uh, it's time to time to stop. So we'll just uh, have a short. Meta, and first I'll mention uh, my sister Anne with fourth stage breast cancer. May she come to healing that needs to happen. And for our planet, that's If it isn't anthropomorphizing it, it is probably yearning, praying for us to wake up. And we can do something, anything, out of love, out of caring, out of compassion. May we give back to our planet, 
the love and the care and the generosity that we receive. And may all beings wake up and express their love and wisdom well and wake up together. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much for your attention. Have a great summer and uh, see you in, in August. Mm-hmm.